No Stupid Questions is sponsored by Ulta Beauty. This AAPI Heritage Month, Ulta Beauty is celebrating the joy of belonging, belonging to a community composed of intricate connections, belonging to the heritage and birthright that is beauty. Ulta Beauty spotlights the AAPI community passing the mic to brand founders and creators to tell their stories centered on heritage, joy, and beauty. Shop AAPI-owned and founded brands at Ulta Beauty stores and Ulta.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. I'm sure somebody out there is actually eating Cheeto salads. I'm Angela Duckworth. I'm Stephen Dubner. And And you're you're listening listening to No Stupid Stupid Questions. Questions. Today on the show, what's the best way to ask for forgiveness? Say sorry. Sorry. Also, are we naive to think that insights from social science can result in behavior change for good? We don't need self-control anymore. We don't need behavioral science anymore. Stephen, have you ever heard of the gratitude letter? No, but unless it's something radically different than what it sounds like, (laughs) I think I understand it. You're like, is that a thank you note just (laughs) rebranded? No, it's actually a thing. What is it? So a gratitude letter is when you write a letter to someone. Expressing gratitude? But it can't just be like, thanks, Aunt Marge, for the beautiful yellow sweater. That's a thank you note. A gratitude letter is like. Thanks, Aunt Marge, for teaching me how to knit yellow sweaters. And for being such a role model in my life. I'm tearing up now. Yep, that usually happens when you get a gratitude letter. So it's to someone you haven't properly thanked, and it's about what they meant in your life. Gotcha. Does that help? Sounds lovely. It's a lovely thing. And actually, there's lots of research on it. showing that it makes people happy to write them. It makes people happy to receive them. But here's my question. I was wondering why there isn't an analogous exercise called the forgiveness letter. What do you think about that? So I would say that I'm not so sure this doesn't exist, maybe not as formulaically as the gratitude letter. But before we get into the apology letter, the apology generally, is the gratitude letter something that was conceived by or canonized by psychologists? I think the person who should take the most credit is a guy named Bob Emmons. Have you ever heard of Bob Emmons? I haven't, but I hadn't heard of a gratitude letter either, so... I don't know much. I know. What ungrateful rock are you living (laughs) under, Stephen? Okay, Bob Emmons is a world-class psychologist. He's really well-known for his work on gratitude. He was studying this, and it's many, many benefits. And I think his idea was what could people do to actually create more gratitude willfully. So I know that writing in a gratitude journal is a pretty common practice now, at least among certain people. It does make me wonder what the difference is between writing a letter of gratitude to someone who will actually read it and could potentially reciprocate versus just writing to yourself in your journal. Do you have any idea? 
Well, Marty Seligman was my PhD advisor, and some people call him the father of positive psychology. So Marty did a study with other people in the lab, including his postdoc at the time, Tracy Steen. And there was a random assignment to multiple conditions, but one of them was the gratitude letter, and the other was, among others, I should say, writing in a gratitude journal. And I believe the finding was that they both make you happier in the short term, but that over the longer term, the gratitude journal might have more enduring benefits. And I'd assume because there's more opportunity to engage, right? There are only so many people you can write a gratitude letter to. Well, there's even a lighter version than a gratitude journal, which is you just think of three good things that have happened to you, sometimes called the three blessings exercise, which you could just do in your pajamas while you're brushing your teeth. You can make a habit of it, right? Whereas writing a long letter to somebody you haven't properly thanked is unlikely something you're going to be doing on a daily basis. So it's more of a habit than a one-shot boost. Yes. So it's nice to hear about gratitude, and that doesn't surprise me. As for apologies, I do know that some economists, weirdly perhaps, have developed a framework for asking for forgiveness, or at least maybe this is a little bit more transactional than that. They call it how to optimize apologies. (laughs) Sounds right. Two of the economists who've worked on this are John List at the University of Chicago and Ben Ho, who's at Vassar. And I believe it started when John List was working on the side for Uber. He was the chief economist at Uber. And he had a really bad Uber trip. I think it was something like he was on his way to a fairly important meeting. The Uber was supposed to arrive and it didn't arrive. And he was surprised that he got no apology from Uber. So he called up the CEO, Travis Kalanick, that he worked with and said, hey, if I got pissed about this. I'm guessing there are a lot of other people who are getting pissed when something goes wrong. And do you think that we're hurting our business by not apologizing? So they began to experiment with different sorts of apologies when something went wrong on the Uber platform and different kinds of incentives that they could offer, cash, a coupon for the next ride, and so on. And then John List roped in this economist at Vassar, I mentioned Ben Ho, who had already been working on how to optimize apologies, having nothing to do with Uber. And so what they concluded together was that, yes, you can optimize your apology. There's a big difference between a good apology and a bad apology. And for a good apology to land, it must have several different components, none of which I would say are at all surprising, except maybe the last one. So the components are, it has to be sincere, which... Sounds about as obvious as it could be. It's like, yeah, sorry. Yeah, the way nine-year-olds say sorry. When you say, say sorry. Sorry. So that doesn't work. So sincerity is important. You have to acknowledge the wrongness. In other words, the non-apology apology that a lot of people say, like, I'm sorry you were offended by the thing that I said that I still believe was true. I'm sorry you feel that way. Exactly. I hate that one. Right. So if you want your apology to be accepted, there needs to be acknowledgement that it was wrong. There further needs to be a commitment to improve that this was an anomaly or an aberration. I understand it was wrong and I will not do that again. So none of those I think are non-obvious. The one that the economist came up with that I do think resonates and I think puts it over the top to a really good apology is that it has to be costly to the apologizer. And that doesn't mean necessarily in terms of money, 
But in terms of something, it has to show the person receiving the apology or the group receiving the apology that that commitment to improve actually involves some of your time or money or reputation or whatnot. And that is how to, according to economists, at least optimize an apology. I really like that. And by the way, there's a connection to gratitude because the emotion of gratitude is experienced when somebody does something for you. We feel grateful, especially and maybe only when we feel like somebody has done something for us at some cost. And so I wonder whether we could translate this into non-Uber terms. So my most frequent context of apologizing or needing to apologize or wanting apologies is my marriage. The next time I, God forbid, do something that I have to apologize for, that I have to ask (laughs) forgiveness for, what would it mean to offer something like reparations? What does that mean in the context of a romantic relationship? Okay. First of all, let's focus in. What's this transgression? What did you do that you're asking forgiveness for? Okay. So say, for example, I lose my temper, which, yeah, sometimes happens. Say there's a misunderstanding, like we were supposed to meet at two o'clock at this place and then he doesn't show. Oh, so it's really his fault, you're saying, that you lost your temper because he didn't show. Very interesting. Well, what often happens is that there's some error that was made that I would say was his responsibility, but like on a scale from one to 10, it's like a one. And then I react as if it were a 10. I think that sometimes happens where I lose my temper and it's totally out of proportion to the tiny little innocent misstep that was made. And it doesn't happen often, but when it does, I think I probably ought to apologize. And I'm wondering, I get the part where I have to say that I'm sorry sincerely. I get the part that I have to say, I'm responsible for losing my temper. It's nobody's fault but mine. Right. Commit to improve as well. I will try to next time use different language. But what about the last part? So now let's make it costly. What's something that Jason loves to do and would love you to do with him, but you never will do? Rock climbing. There you go. So you could say, you know what, Jason, I totally lost my temper. I apologize. It was wrong. I need to stop doing that, and I'm going to try to stop doing it. And you know what? Just to show my commitment to this, the next time I do it, I'm immediately going to book us a couple's rock climbing session. Oh, you know what I love about this? You didn't say, and you know what? I'm going to go rock climbing with you. You said the next time. Like, you're my agent here. No, she's not going to go rock climbing today. But lucky. We'll talk about the future. And also, the value of an apology is not just to cleanse your conscience or to make the other person feel better. But if it's a relationship, it's a friend, family member, whatever, the point of an apology, I mean, this is a point that the sociologist Christine Carter makes, is that if you've hurt or offended someone, the idea is to repair and then grow the relationship. So really, if you look at it in that way, even from an economic perspective, an apology is a great thing because it produces future benefit. And look, we should say it's a totally different deal when you're talking about a person apologizing to another person and a company apologizing to its market, whatever. It is interesting, though, in medicine, for instance, for years, there was essentially a prohibition for doctors to 
apologize to patients if things went wrong because that might lead to malpractice. Right, because it's an admission of responsibility. And then a bunch of states passed what came to be called I'm sorry laws that allowed doctors to apologize without having any liability accrued to them. And they found that that actually cut down on malpractice lawsuits. Oh, because when your doctor says, I'm sorry, and accept some responsibility, you'd feel less motivated to sue them? If I have it correct in my memory, that's roughly the gist of the story. And I think it's not such an easy story to prove because there might be other factors that led to fewer malpractice suits that might have co-traveled along with these I'm sorry laws, but that is at least the premise. But that does suggest the power of an apology that resonates with people. Yeah, I mean, it would be nice to live in a society where we apologized and took responsibility. I don't know that everybody has to do the equivalent of going rock climbing with each other, but I really, really appreciate it when I get an apology that is sincere and also where I feel like the person really did take responsibility and it doesn't always happen. Yeah, I have to say, I dislike people who never apologize. It's just not a good look. And I think we all know some people in our personal lives or in public where their strategy is basically to, even if they've done something that's demonstrably wrong, just to counterattack. So why do you think they do that? Well, you know, there is research from a psychologist at the University of Pittsburgh named Karina Schulman, who has looked at why people fail to offer apologies. The three barriers she notices are that they have a low concern for the victim or the relationship. In other words, you just don't really care. They don't care. care. They don't care enough to apologize. You have a perceived threat to your self-image. Like, if I have to admit that I was wrong, I look bad in the eyes of other people, or maybe just in my own eyes. And then also there's a perception that the apology won't be effective, that you're going to go ahead and demean yourself by apologizing, and it doesn't matter. I would add one more, which is you think it's too late. Something happened, and then you're like, oh, I didn't handle that well. I should not have said that. I wish I had done something different, but you don't apologize. And then after like a few days, you're like, well, if I go back now and do it, it's going to be worse. And I have to say, as someone who on a couple occasions failed to receive an apology that I thought was due, even if it came 10 years later, I would still like it. Honestly. Well, okay, then I have a Yom Kippur question for you. I have a Yom Kippur answer for you. (laughs) Okay. Why on the Day of Atonement are you supposed to ask for forgiveness? You're not supposed to actually literally ask the person that you wronged, right? It's not an actual letter that you write to another person, is it? It's kind of a two-phase thing. You are encouraged to ask people for forgiveness for any transgressions that have happened during the previous year. That's the individual part. But then there's the communal part where if you go to synagogue on Yom Kippur, you stand with all the other members of your congregation and you recite this long set of prayers of all the different transgressions that are possible. And what's really moving about that is this is not about what I did. It's not about what you did. It's the fact that this is what humans can do. And so it's an amazingly long and specific list. There's like, (laughs) for the sin we have committed by being hard-hearted, for the sins we have committed knowingly or unknowingly, for the sins we have committed by scoffing, for the sins we have committed by acting in a haughty demeanor, for the sins we have committed by an insincere confession, which indicates, by the way, that a bad apology can be worse than no apology at all. And so this is this very, I find, powerful collective 
request for forgiveness. And I do think it's an interesting model. On the other hand, it's only once a year. So (laughs) I think it'd be better to build a mechanism where we could all apologize or ask for forgiveness more routinely than that. Yeah. And you don't just mean like becoming Catholic, right? And then going to a weekly (laughs) confessional, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Look, whatever floats your forgiveness boat, I don't think that forgiveness is only sanctioned within the realm of thousands of years old religious traditions. I think that there's a lot to be said for finding super secular and accessible modes of apology and forgiveness, as evidenced by the fact that I expect to see you on a rock climbing wall in the near future. I think I owe my husband enough rock climbing to get to the top of Mount Everest. So I agree. And I think that if we can develop a habit of thinking of three good things every morning, then maybe at least once a week, you could think of one thing that you really ought to take responsibility for and say, sincerely, I'm sorry, I'll try to do better. And here's what I'm going to do for you. In fact, maybe you just bake that into the gratitude journal. So on the last line of every page of the gratitude journal, there's your forgiveness section there, your apology section. Okay, a slight amendment to that. You know why this is probably not taken off the way the gratitude exercise has? When you do the gratitude journal, you know what you feel? You feel good? It makes you feel great. You're immediately assuming that apologies don't make you feel so good? Well, I mean, your attention is going to something that you feel bad about, right? That's why you're apologizing. But then you deal with it and you have a clear conscience. Well, except for that if you weren't thinking about it at all, then you're still a net negative, right? Oh, come on. You're a psychologist and you're telling me just because you're not thinking about it at all doesn't mean it's in there working its way. But you know what? What you're not thinking about doesn't actually have a lot of potency. That's why denial is such a river. (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying we should be in denial, but I mean, that's why people do it. It's a coping mechanism. I thought we were collectively of the opinion that too much denial will come back to haunt you. Sure. Totally agree. I'm not saying that's good in the long run. I'm just saying that you can do it. So when you have a little forgiveness journal, you are activating all these thoughts of things that you did wrong. And so here's just a gentle suggestion. Let's create a journal where you think of three good things and you think of one thing that you could have done better that you should apologize for. But let's just change the order, if that's okay with you. So first, you ask for forgiveness and you're kind of like maybe feeling a little relief, but it's a little bit of a bummer. Then you write your three good things. You really want the happy ending, don't you? I want to end on a high note. So let me just say this. I apologize for not thinking that your idea was better than mine. I now see that it was. I acknowledge I was wrong. I will work hard to improve on my assessment of your ideas versus my ideas. And the next time I make this mistake, I will go rock climbing with Jason. (laughs) Still to come on No Stupid Questions. Why hasn't the behavior change revolution made us all healthier, happier, and more productive? You sort of just really enjoy sitting around and not exercising. No Stupid Questions is sponsored by Rosetta Stone. Traveling is so much more meaningful when you understand the language of the place you're visiting. Rosetta Stone, one of the most trusted language learning programs, has helped millions learn new languages and can help you too. With Rosetta Stone, you'll learn intuitively. You're trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your chosen language. You'll be prepared for real, authentic conversations. 
Plus, their True Accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with the Rosetta Stone app, you can learn anytime, anywhere, with customizable lessons as short as 10 minutes. For a very limited time, our listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash questions. That's rosettastone.com slash questions. No Stupid Questions is sponsored by IXL Learning. Instead of costly private tutoring, IXL Learning can give your child the help they need at an affordable price. IXL is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. It's designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. And you get one site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. There's a reason why IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. If your child is struggling, this is the smartest investment you can make. And a month of IXL costs less than an hour of tutoring. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And No Stupid Questions listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com questions. Visit IXL.com questions to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Experimentation is how generation-defining companies win. But you need a reliable, rigorous system to run experiments effectively. Welcome to EPPO, a next-generation A-B testing platform that helps modern growth teams maximize ROI and understand the impact of new features. Visit getepo.com freak to learn how EPPO can help you increase experimentation velocity while unlocking rigorous, deep analysis in a way that no other commercial tool does. That's G-E-T-E-P-P-O dot slash freak. So, Angela, one project that you have been involved in, which is one of the ways that I got to know you much better, is a project called Behavior Change for Good, which has been around for a few years now. Do you want to just give a top-down description of it? Behavior Change for Good is a project that I am doing with Katie Milkman, who is its real leader. And the idea at its inception was, can you take social science, economics and psychology and sociology and apply it to the question of enduring human behavior change? So can you help people make healthy habits that last for months and years? And I say that in the past tense because in the last few years since we got started, we've run some studies and it's become clear to us that changing behavior in the short term hasn't yet been completely solved. So before we end up trying to change behavior for good, we ought to do better at changing behavior even over the course of, for example, weeks. Wow. So you just answered about 80% of my question, but <laughs> let me go ahead and ask the question. We'll get to the other 20%. And I should say for anyone that wants to listen, we made a few Freakonomics radio episodes about behavior change for good. They are episode number 282, which was called Could Solving This One Problem Solve All the Others? That one problem being behavior change, basically. Episode number 306 was called How to Launch a Behavior Change Revolution. And episode number 382, which was called How Goes the Behavior Change Revolution? And this is what I wanted to talk about. It was inspired by a listener named Mark McMahon writing in with the same question. He wrote, I want to know how goes Angela Duckworth and Katie Milkman's behavior revolution. 
And the reason it strikes me as a particularly good time to ask that question is when I look at the pandemic and the efforts that have been successful and unsuccessful at moving people toward compliance, when compliance is generally agreed upon, mask wearing, hand hygiene, social distancing, et cetera, et cetera, I went looking for evidence that behavioral science was really contributing to this, that there were campaigns or signs or conversations that were informed by the kind of behavioral science that you and Katie do and many behavioral economists, Richard Thaler and so on, who wrote a book called Nudge, talking about the way to nudge people towards pro-social behavior, as opposed to mandates. And I kind of came up empty. And so it made me really want to just revisit this larger question of behavior change generally. When smart, motivated, well-intentioned people like yourself and like Katie Milkman set out to routinize behavior change, I just wonder if changing human behavior in a way that we think is pro-social, all the things that you're trying to get people to do, better nutrition, better savings plans, better education plans. I just wonder if you're starting to feel like this is, if not a much harder project than you had envisioned in the beginning, maybe even not so possible. Well, I'm not ready to say that human behavior change is impossible, although that's not what you're saying. You're not saying that people can't change. You're saying that the project of applying social science to the problem of human behavior change may be a fool's errand. Is that right? Yes. And I also don't mean to turn this into a binary like, no, the economists were right when they said that incentives are all that matter versus the psychologists were right. And they said all that matters is really framing things in the right way. I think it's silly to be that binary, but I am frustrated that there aren't more great successes of nudges and so on. Right. Okay. Well, I would first of all say that in cases like today where we're in a pandemic and there are externalities, to use the economic term, to someone not wearing a mask, like it's not just bad for them, it's bad for other people, that you might want to go right past nudges and go to hard paternalism. Just make it a law. (laughs) I would be delighted if there were a law passed that said, wear a mask in public spaces, period. And of course, here's a free mask. And can I just say for people who might feel that that's stepping over the limit of personal freedom, it's interesting. I think one parallel that I've been thinking about a lot is seatbelts in cars, which are, of course, legally mandated now. But when seatbelts in cars were first proposed, they were mostly decried. The auto manufacturers didn't want them in their cars because they thought that the prominent appearance of a safety device in this machine that was all about freedom and mobility would accentuate how dangerous they were. (laughs) Kind of a buzzkill. Congress, there were congressional hearings, felt that seatbelts were just a way to get more money from customers. If you put in a seatbelt, you're going to charge $50 more. There was reluctance from many, many, many avenues. But what happened is Because the same thing kept happening over and over and over and over, which is that tens of thousands of people kept getting killed every year in cars. Finally, it came to be accepted, and now it's obviously mandatory. But I find that a really interesting lesson in history to show how reluctant we can be for many reasons to embrace something that we now finally, as you said, had to require ourselves to use. It's amazing how long it can take us to do something which is common sense. Recently, the director of the CDC, Dr. Robert Redfield, said that 
if you just got everyone to wear masks, it would be even more effective than there being a vaccine. Masks are extremely effective. You know, they're primitive technology and vaccines are great, but vaccines tend to not be 100 percent effective for all people. Okay, but if you ask me to audit the successes of behavioral science, which is not laws and not mandates and not taxes, but social norms, framing effects, defaults, et cetera, I would say that there are some wins that go on that side of the ledger. So, for example, I think defaults for retirement savings have generally been effective. Okay, sorry. I I don't mean to interrupt you immediately. (laughs) You're right. Except for? Well, this was a really, really, really big one. And it was something that Dick Thaler did many years ago with, I believe, Shlomo Benartzi. Shlomo Benartzi, yeah. And it's great. And basically, it said that people have a hard time saving for pensions within their companies, in part because it's a pain in the neck to sign up all that paperwork, then you have to choose among all these mutual funds. What if rather than having to opt in and do all that paperwork, you're presumed to enroll and you have to opt out instead? So as you said, it flipped the default. And that was an awesome idea. And it's been wildly successful. It's helped people save billions, maybe trillions of dollars. But the fact that that is the first one that you mentioned, it's often the only one that anyone can mention. And it happened 30 years ago. Okay, let me see if I can come up with a more recent big win. One of the big insights from behavioral science is that friction is bad. And if you want people to do something, you have to remove the barriers. Now, I'm not going to consider the following an example of a public good, but one-click shopping is essentially behavioral science in action. Somebody at Amazon figured out that if you could buy something with no effort. And also, if people can get their paper towels tomorrow because of hyperbolic discounting, because like, oh my gosh, waiting till Thursday, are you kidding me? (laughs) If I can click and it comes tomorrow, I'm capitalizing on the way we experience utility and our inability to imagine the future, et cetera. So that's not necessarily a public positive, but it's certainly pervasive. It is pervasive, but let me challenge it a little bit and say that a lot of changes that we try to make via behavior change, let's say hand hygiene compliance, what you can see in the realm of hand hygiene that really worked much better tend to be either design or technology changes. There's having an RFID chip in your ID badge. Yeah, so that when you go to the sink, it logs. So that puts a little shame in or design so that, you know, the sink or the disinfectant is right at the proper spot. But what you're describing with Amazon is, I would argue, more in the category of better design and technology than behavior change. I mean, it's using the insights from psychology and behavioral science that, yeah, people want stuff right away. And yeah, people don't want to go to a lot of trouble to do it. But I would argue that's much more of a technology and design win than a behavior change win. There's a blurry line between just like better UX and behavioral science. Yeah. We should just say UX stands for user experience. Yes, I think that's the, you know, clever, sexy way. Yeah, that is really sexy. (laughs) So this big, splashy study that came out recently where the New York City Justice Department was sending out court summonses and what behavioral scientists among them did was they just redesigned the summons form just to basically be better UX, like more readable. I think they may have sent a text message and they were able to reduce the percentage of people 
people who neglected to come in. And then, of course, there's all these consequences. There's like jail time that needs to happen if you don't answer your first summons, etc. So was that behavioral science? Well, it was published in an academic journal. In fact, it was published in Science, the best academic journal, and it was conducted by scientists. Or was that just like basic common sense and user experience? So there's a bit of a blurry line, I think. Good point. Noted and accepted. So let me ask you this. A little bird told me that you, to some degree, acknowledge the difficulty of behavior change generally to the point where you've come up with a list like Angela Duckworth's 10, or I'm told it's 13 commandments of why behavior change is hard. Is that true? It is true. And then let me group them for you, because 13 is a lot for anybody to remember. But I think there's three buckets of reasons why behavior change is extremely hard. So the first bucket has like four reasons in it. The bucket is called restraining forces. And at the beginning of behavior change, they make the status quo very sticky and they restrain you from getting started. Imagine that you want to start an exercise program. There could be ambivalence about that. Like you sort of just really enjoy sitting around and not exercising. If you can't get the person to really want to get started, then what are you going to do? There's only so much you can say to a person if they don't feel like they want to change. I see. I'm curious whether this is something I learned actually while reporting on one of the episodes about your Behavior Change for Good project, when Danny Kahneman was talking about his influence of Kurt Lewin. Yes. So Kurt Lewin was this amazing scientist. You know you've really made it when your name becomes an adjective. So, you know, it's Lewinian. <laughs> if you read these old articles that he wrote, he has all these like force diagrams, just like we learn in physics, like the arrows pointing different ways. And he really thought of behavior change as essentially a problem where you have promoting forces, like I could be healthier if I started exercising. Maybe it would be a way to meet other people. But then you have restraining forces, like I don't have any of the stuff to exercise. I get out of breath very quickly. I feel kind of silly doing things that I don't know how to do. So Lewin had the insight that when we try to change our own behavior, and especially when we try to change somebody else's behavior, our romantic partner, our colleague, what we tend to do is we try to pile on more promoting forces. We tell people all the reasons why they should exercise. We try to make it sound better. Which can come off as preaching and scolding, by the way. It tends not to work for various reasons, including that one. And then the further insight was that you can actually get more leverage in many cases by removing the restraining forces, by identifying the reasons why the person isn't yet exercising and then taking them out of the way. Now, do you think our natural tendency or what I assume is a natural tendency to try to promote promoting forces as opposed to removing restraining forces do you think that's a human instinct? Do you think that's something that comes from certain kinds of cultures or even political systems? I think it's probably mostly a human instinct. The promoting forces are what's obvious, right? Like you're trying to get your kid to study, so you exhort them to study. You tell them that studying is important, et cetera. You don't ask the question, why aren't they studying already? It's just less obvious. Okay, so you make the argument that behavior change is hard for many reasons. They're divided into three buckets. The first bucket is that there are a lot of restraining forces, especially at the beginning, that make the status quo sticky, essentially. What's bucket two? Okay, so I guess if we're going to go all Lewin on this, if there's a force diagram and you're like, okay, I've removed some of these 
arrows that are pointing in the wrong direction, but objects don't move until they have a shove, right? So now we got to shove people in the right direction. And I think getting going is hard. From a perspective of a policymaker, you're going to try to get people to wear masks or wear seatbelts or stop smoking or eat healthier. We send these public service announcements or these nutrition labels. We slap them on the side of every box of cereal. But the UX is just bad. It's bad graphics, bad writing, not engaging. And so collectively, the kind of getting going is hard category has a lot to do with design, actually. So restraining forces, getting going is hard. I hope the third basket has some good things in it. Okay, so we've removed the restraining forces. We gave the object a shove in the right direction. And the last one is momentum. Sticking with change is hard. But wait, momentum in physics, at least, once you get it moving, it wants to stay in motion, no? Only if you are in an environment that has no friction, Stephen, and there are no such environments. I thought you just removed the friction from the first basket. But you can't remove all friction. And I think that's really important because in human behavior change, there's also frictional force. Let's take, for example, you've decided to start eating a salad for lunch instead of your usual bag of Cheetos. Now, that's really hard, but we remove all the restraining forces. We make the salad available. Just for the purposes of verisimilitude, we should say that there was a transition where it became a Cheeto salad. (laughs) Yeah, I think Taco Bell actually made a fair (laughs) amount of money when they made a salad in a deep fried which should be illegal practically, right? (laughs) I'm sure somebody out there is actually eating Cheeto salads. But let's take the case of somebody who stops eating Cheetos and starts eating green, leafy, oil and vinegar salads. You do it one day, you do it two days, you do it three days. But there are all these frictional forces against you. Like maybe your husband has not taken on the salad lunch routine and he wants to instead go to McDonald's. So that's one frictional force. There's other frictional forces like, you know, you just went on your or autopilot mode and you just, before you knew it, ate a bag of Cheetos and it just happened. So I do think that even once you've got going and even when you've had some small wins, that sticking with behavior change can be hard. And I don't think there is a universe in which there aren't these like counter forces that you have to deal with if you want to change behavior really for good. So you've just given us 13 points worth of essentially bad news if you want to use behavioral science to affect behavior change. But I guess what I'm asking is a big and scary existential question. Do you feel it's time to give up on the promise of this kind of social science-driven behavior change and acknowledge it? We're going to need either a more aggressive paternalism. We're going to need more aggressive design and technology. We're going to need to leave the humans more out of the equation and just set up the ecosystem better so that they can't screw it up. So I'm going to argue for a cocktail. I think if there are at least 13 reasons why behavior change is hard, we can't expect the answer to be one thing. We shouldn't expect that these are going to be panaceas because the problem is much more complicated and there are multiple forces to be reckoned with. So we should work more and more towards these complex multi-ingredient interventions. I'm just saying that I don't think you're ever going to have a day where you're like, we don't need self-control anymore. We don't need behavioral science anymore because in some way, shape or form, we're still going to be doing battle with ourselves. No Stupid Questions is part of the Freakonomics Radio Network, which also includes Freakonomics Radio and People I Mostly Admire, a new podcast hosted by Freakonomics co-author Steve Levitt. This episode was produced by me, Rebecca Lee Douglas, and now here's a fact check of today's conversations. 
During the conversation about forgiveness, Stephen tells Angela about how economist John List's poor experience with an Uber ride resulted in a framework to optimize apologies. However, Stephen's recollection was slightly incorrect. He says that List's car never arrived. The Uber actually did pick him up, but instead of dropping him at the conference where he was scheduled to give a keynote address, the driver took him on a 25-minute detour that ended back at List's house. You can hear John List share the full story in Freakonomics Radio episode 353, How to Optimize Your Apology. Later, Stephen breaks down the reasons that people often fail to offer apologies and references the work of psychologist Karina Schulman. He actually meant to say Karina Schumann. Schumann is the social psychology program chair at the University of Pittsburgh. Her research focuses on apologies, forgiveness, empathy, and revenge. During the second half of the episode, Angela compares Stephen's idea for a Cheeto salad to an option available at Taco Bell. It's possible she was thinking of the Fiesta Taco Salad, composed of beef, beans, fried tortilla chips, rice, sour cream, cheese, and a hint of lettuce. But for those who are more interested in Frito-Lay than Taco Bell, recipe developer Nicole Perry actually created a flaming hot Cheetos kale salad that includes white wine vinegar, toasted walnuts, and pink lady apples. For listeners who are brave enough to try it at home, we'll link to the full recipe in our show notes. That's it for the fact check. No Stupid Questions is produced by Freakonomics Radio and Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Craiglow, Greg Rippin, and James Foster. Our intern is Emma Terrell. Our theme song is And She Was by Talking Heads. Special thanks to David Byrne and Warner Chapel Music. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free, subscribe to Stitcher Premium. You can also follow us on Twitter at NSQ underscore show and on Facebook at NSQ show. If you have a question for a future episode, please email it to nsq at freakonomics.com. And if you heard Stephen or Angela reference a study, an expert, or a Cheeto-inspired concoction that you'd like to learn more about, you can check out freakonomics.com slash nsq, where we link to all of the major references that you heard here today. Thanks for listening. So Angela, you're a busy person. You have your hands in a lot of pots. That's not a phrase, is it? (laughs) is not a phrase. You have your poker in a lot of fires? I think we should stop. <laughs> Stitcher. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side... 
It's going to be great. 